for us, uh, we're going to be in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, and uh, it's an interesting passage, and it took me a long time to figure out how to preach this. Yet, uh, if you look at it, and we're going to see, this is the culmination of the entire book. This is the summary. This is the climax. This is, uh, in a, a few verses, uh, kind of, if you want a quick summary of this entire book, it's right here. And so this is the last of the five warnings that God has been bringing through the writer of Hebrews to his people. And remember, there's five of them, and we've looked at these, and uh, the warning uh, to not drift from the word or to be deadened or hardened to the word of God, uh, to be dull to the word or to discard it, to discard the word of God, and now to defy the word of God. Um, the, the emphasis is that God is speaking you know, in past, in times past, he spoke through the prophets. Now he speaks to us through his son, Jesus. That's in the beginning of chapter 1. And so the whole book of Hebrews is God writing to his people. God speaking to his people, yet we understand. I, I, it's as if my life is all over this chapter, not on the good parts, <laughs> but the reality of drifting of becoming dull at times, just kind of refusing to listen. If you can relate to that at all, this passage is for you. Uh, because God is speaking to us. Are we ones who are listening, or are we like his people, the people of Israel, uh, who have hardened or maybe drifted or even not listened uh, to the word of God? So we're going to be in Hebrews 12, starting in verse 14. Um, I welcome you to stand as we just... That being an expression of us submitting our life to the word of God. He's speaking and we want to hear. Verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls or fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the, hear, the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. 
For if they, that's the Israelites, did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how, mu- or how less, or much less, will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, and now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, uh, it struck me as interesting that that would be the summary of this book. Yet, God, I pray that you would give us insight from the Spirit, that, Father, you would speak and that we would hear. God, uh, not only would we hear words, but that we would surrender, that we would hear with our hearts, that our hearts would be soft to what you're saying. Father, I pray that we would not be like the people of centuries of your people that have heard your word, discarded it, and gone their own way. Father, refused to listen, rejected it, and pursued other gods. Father, be with us. I pray that you would speak to us. God, challenge us. Let us leave this morning different and transformed because we've heard from you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you would, please be seated. So I know we have a lot of high school students, and some of y'all are about to uh, head into driving, uh, maybe for the first time, or some of you are new drivers. And, uh, and so one of the things that they used to teach in driver's ed um, is uh, what police are going to fill out and, and produce on an accident report. And uh, you have to, you've got to give an answer for if you ever get in an accident. And so here are some of the answers given of, uh, you know, reasons why people got in accidents. These, you know, you may want to be a little bit more descriptive and helpful in, uh, in, your, in describing your accident. Well, I pulled away from the side of the road. I glanced at my mother-in-law and then ho- headed over the embankment. I mean, that makes perfect sense, right? That makes perfect sense. Um, you know, uh, how about the, uh, you know, the guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. Okay. Um, I thought my window was down, but I found out it was closed when I when I tried to put my head through it. In an attempt to kill a fly, I drove into a telephone pole. Sadly, we can all relate if you're a driver at all. Uh, don't text and drive and don't try to do a bunch of other things uh, while we do that. But what's true of most accidents and all the different crazy that, of reasons why we say they happen is a lack of attention. It's a lack of looking at what we should be looking at. You know, we're chasing a fly. We're texting. We're reading a text. You know, we're trying to get the kids quiet. You know, we're looking basically at all sorts of different things. And when we divert our attention away from what we should be doing onto things that are not necessarily most important, terrible things can happen. Even if you're not trying to do something destructive, 
you know? Even if you're talking to somebody and having a great conversation, it's not like you're trying to do anything horrible. Even that sometimes, if we fail to pay attention to what we're doing and, uh, and fail to take purposeful action towards that, uh, some terrible things can happen. A friend of mine was driving on the interstate when he was in college. Uh, he was worked at a restaurant, and it closed really late, and uh, he actually closed the restaurant. He's driving home, and uh, he's on the interstate until he wakes up, and his car is going off an exit ramp, okay? Not exactly, uh, you know, his intention uh, in, you know, asleep at the wheel. This sense where we lose attention on what we should be having our attention on, drastic things, really uh, amazing things can happen. But yet it's really, it is amazingly uh, so easy to do these things, to, to lose our attention, right? To, be, to, uh, uh, to lose the awareness of what we should have it on. But I would say this, the only way to not have attention get distracted is to purposely put your attention somewhere, okay? You're going to think about something. The question is, what are you thinking about? Well, you're going you're to pay attention to something. What are you atten- paying attention to do? So making these intentional decisions, you know, before things get out of hand is exactly the point of paying attention at the wheel, not falling asleep at the wheel. It's also the point in the warning of the book of Hebrews. Not relating to driving, but relating to our idea of faith. You you think about those warnings, drifting, becoming deadened or hardened to the word, uh, becoming dull, even discarding and defying the word. All of those things are pointing uh, to what happens when we don't pay attention, when we don't set our mind on the things that God is calling us to. He's called us all through this book to take very purposeful action in order to pursue him. Here's the thing. A walk of faith is not an aimless walk in the park, just an aimless walk through life. That is not the walk of faith. The walk of faith is a determined walk towards the living God. You're going to pay attention to something. You're going to set your mind and your heart somewhere. Unless you set it on pursuing the living God, you will pursue something else. If you are one that might say, you know what, I'm not the most determined, purposeful person in the world, by the way, I am one of those. So this, you can listen in as I speak to myself, okay? Um, uh, The purposeful pursuit of God is what safeguards us against those things. Remember, we looked at drifting, you know? Don't drift away. What happens when you drift is you don't realize you're getting further and further and further away from the point that you're intended to be. So what was the writer of Hebrews, what was the solution to drifting in chapter 2? Pay much closer attention. What was the idea of becoming deadened or hardened to the word? You know, this thing that would grow over time, just this, this deadness or this boredom or becoming callous to the word of God. What, was, what, what did God say for us to do is to take care and exhort one another, encourage one another, and push one another along. It's take care. So it's pay much closer attention. Take care. What was the, uh, what was the idea of us becoming dull? God's, uh, God puts before us that we would become earnest, zealous, and that we would not be, and so that we would not be sluggish. 
And so all of those things are what God is putting in front of us, and this passage and this warning push in the same exact direction. But defying feels very active. It doesn't feel passive, like drifting, kind of hardening or deadening, dullness. But we're going to see that it actually is. Because you're going to say, you know what? I don't defy God. Because we define defying God as, God, you're up there, and, you know, talk to the hand. I'm pushing you out of my life. I want nothing to do with you. That's how we define the word defy. But we're going to see that the same result happens from very subtle ways. And it's in, in terms us de- defying and pushing out uh, uh, who God is. Is. And so, why am I saying, um, and, and uh, one, one commentator led me here, why would I say that this passage is the summary and the climax of this letter? Is because right in the middle of it, the amazing glory of Jesus, remember the whole point of this is Jesus is better than everything. In the contrast that he's laid out for all of these chapters, gets summarized in six verses. So Jesus and his amazing glory is contrasted against Moses and the law, which by itself was amazing and glorious, but paled in comparison with Jesus. But then also what flows of that is our fervency in our pursuit of God. So if you could take, you know, the, the, tr- the theological truth is Jesus is better than everything, more amazing and more glorious than everything, and set that with us to take very careful attention, that's, that's the book of Hebrews. To take care and set your mind on him. So what are we taking fervent action to keep hold of? That's the question. And it's, it really comes in this sentence. Um, sorry for being really wordy. Uh, and might have to go look over here. So since the kingdom of God is more glorious than anything we've experienced, we must pursue it vigorously. Okay? And that, word, that last word, vigorously, is important. Okay? It is not, you know what, I come on Sunday morning and I get my Jesus fix and I go through my life. The writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is more glorious than anything else that you chase in this life. Chase after him with absolute vigor. And we could probably stop right there and let the Holy Spirit preach the rest. Does your life match, does my life match a vigorous pursuit of Jesus? Does it match a vigorous pursuit of the kingdom of God? Or are you kind of reacting, kind of just walking through life? Jesus is saying, I have more glory than you could imagine, and I would love to share it with you. I would love for you to be and find life in me, yet we find ourselves chasing after other things. So where do we see this glory? It's in verses 18 to 24. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it again, but please look there in chapter 12, verse 18 to 24. Okay, so the first word is the word for, F-O-R, and it's setting up this contrast uh, in, in this passage, basically that the grounds for um, what, uh, what has just come, or the reason for what has just come uh, before uh, is, is about to be established. And so verses 18 to 24 establish this contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount, Mount Sinai is where the people of Israel ended up after they came out of Egypt. 
They walk, they, they, they cross, they didn't walk yet, sorry. They cross the Red Sea, they go to Mount Sinai, and at Mount Sinai, God gives Moses and the people the Ten Commandments, okay? It was, they, they meet God there, okay? And that's in the book of Exodus. Uh, Mount Zion, we're going to see, is ultimately uh, the, the future and ultimate dwelling of God's people. So let's look at Exodus 19. Um, Exodus 19, starting in verse 16, this is what's going on. This is Mount Sinai, okay? What I want you to hear is this is incredible, okay? That's what we should hear when we hear and look at these words. Uh, Exodus 19, verse 16, on the morning of the third day, uh, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled, okay? It must be some awe-inspiring event that we are all shaking in our boots after what what we are seeing. Verse 17, Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took uh, their stand at the foot of the mountain. This is Mount Sinai. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So the people were shaking, and the mountain was shaking. At the, and at, as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered them in thunder. The Lord came down in Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and he went up. Okay. You know, picture the greatest spectacle event, like fireworks or anything that you've ever seen, and... You probably have not found yourself shaking, trembling for what, you you know, it's kind of the beginning of the Gulf War, you know, shock and awe. And we were watching it on the news uh, when, uh, if you're not old enough, sorry. um, And uh, then when they went in and began uh, this attack, and, and it was this, that spectacle of the military prowess of the United States that pales in comparison for what's going on here. The mountain is is shaking. The people are shaking. It was an event filled with absolute and utter glory. It was amazing. It was awe-inspiring to the point of fear. That's what they witnessed there. That sounds pretty amazing. Sign me up. And the fact that a couple chapters later they're worshiping a golden calf is amazing. But that's what's going on. So then, that's Mount Sinai. What's contrasted is Mount Zion. Mount Zion is like, you thought that was great? This is even greater. And so we get there in, so uh, 18, uh, in the first few verses following, explain Mount Mount Sinai. Burning fire, darkness, gloom, tempest, trumpets, voices, uh, fear, uh, and, and all of those things. Uh, verse 22, here's the contrast. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and to the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, okay? And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In a sense, he's saying, you thought Mount Sinai was awesome. You ain't seen nothing yet. 
And what we are being, what we have been brought into and yet not fully seen is the fullness of what God is doing. And that is described in terms of Mount Zion, what we're brought into, the city and the dwelling place of the living God in heaven. Angels booming out praises. The assembly of the firstborn, uh, those who are in Christ, who are enrolled in heaven with our names written in the Lamb's book of life. We come before God with all of his people and Jesus, and, and it's going to be an explosive celebration of the glory of God. Kind of a, you thought Mount Sinai was great. What you've been brought into and you see a taste of, and what will ultimately be your future, Mount Sinai, is like sprinklers, or not sprinklers, sparklers on uh, 4th of July. Mount Sinai is going to pale in comparison. But what's wild is that it wasn't just a, 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 uh, a story of the power of God. It was also a story of the holiness of God, the perfection and the awe of who God is. And so in, in Exodus 19, verses 12 to 13, uh, do I have that in there? I don't think so. Um, in, in Exodus 19, 12 to 13, actually I'll read it from Hebrews because it basically says the same exact thing. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 20. For they could not endure the order that was given them. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. So what, what's, what's going on is in Exodus 19, God's presence on the mountain, that the mountain radiated the holiness and the otherness of God, his separation from us, that who he is and who we are, there's a great divide. That anybody that would step foot on the mountain without his permission was, was, to, was going to be struck dead. That, that it so radiated that they, we would come into the presence of a holy and righteous God that we could not stand. And even if anyone uh, that went on that mountain and came off, the people weren't even supposed to touch, if it was an animal, they weren't supposed to touch the animal. Exodus 19 says, stone it or basically fire an arrow at it. Why? Because you shouldn't even touch the thing that touched the mountain. Because you have no business being in the presence of a holy and righteous God. So all of that awe, all of that spectacle says, you and I have no place in his presence. Unless there's a mediator. Unless Jesus, as the mediator of the, of the greater covenant, a better Moses, Moses being the one who represents the people to God, unless we are represented by Jesus and his blood sprinkled on us, we have no hope. And so it turns from the fear and the trembling of Mount Sinai to the joy of what is promised to us. And so uh, David Allen, one commentator, as he's writing all these things, um, he says this, The fear which Moses and the people experienced in the presence of God at Sinai was motivated, motivated by their awareness of the infinite gap between their humanity, their humanity, sorry, and God's divinity. So because of that gap, they were filled with fear. Or as, as Luther, Martin Luther, is reported to say, no fear is the worst fear of all. 
Meaning, if you are comfortable standing in the presence of God based on your merit, that is a scary place. Because not one of us in here, and I am the first in line, have no business to be standing in the presence of a holy and righteous God on my merit, and neither do you. So to not have fear before the Lord is a very scary place. And so, the, so Mount Zion pay, uh, just dwarfs Mount Sinai, but then also very quickly, um, uh, verse, verse 28, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Basically, that we've received this kingdom. Like we prayed this morning uh, in our prayer time for the service, one prayed that it was something that God has given to us. It is not something you and I earn. It is God giving his kingdom that can't be shaken to us. So that's the sense, okay? And so since the kingdom of God is better than anything you've experienced, anything you're chasing after, we need to chase after it and pursue it with vigor. Here comes the community project of intentionally pursuing holiness. Verses 14 to 18 set this up. So see to it that no one fails. That's 15, sorry. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And so there's this, this idea of uh, this uh, intentional pursuit, but it is that of a community project. So if you're looking at the outline, we're going to flip it, and I'm going to look at my first subpoint or my second subpoint first. That this is uh, a community project of the people of God. What do I mean by that? Is you and me walking in holiness and pursuing God is not my responsibility for me only. American Christianity is, you know what? It's just me and God. Too bad that's not biblical Christianity. That's American Christianity. Biblical Christianity says the person sitting next to you, the person sitting behind you a few rows, they are responsible for your holiness. And I really don't want to qualify that sentence. I'm just going to let it stand. That there is a responsibility that other people hold for the holiness and the pursuit of God that other people have. The intentional pursuit is a community project. Did you hear the words? Okay, verse 14. You know, strive for peace with everyone, okay? Without which no one will see the Lord. Look at, look at verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So it's not, hey, I've got it. No, see to it that no one else misses it. See to it that other people obtain the grace of God. It's the one another's of, of Scripture that, that we see playing out in here. You know, no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Why not? What's the, because by it, many become defiled. The problem with, with how most of us think through Christianity is that we think it's, it's truly this sense of my relationship with Jesus and Number one, 
God's people suffer because of that. And probably more pointedly, if we're going to think through the, the, the individualistic rationale, you suffer because of it. You need God's people in your life just as much as other people need you in theirs so that we might pursue holiness. Uh, th- that um, this sense of the root of bitterness is actually a root of sin. So that defilement phrase, um, watch out that a root of bitterness doesn't grow, is coming out of Deuteronomy 29. We don't, we're kind of lacking all the time to go into all of this context. But the, um, the root of bitterness is not just me being in at enmity with somebody, like I've really got uh, a difficult relationship with somebody. That's not what's that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about a sin and a and sin that takes root in the body that is bitter, making something that is sweet taste bitter. And so, see to it that the roots of sin and rebellion don't defile God's people. And, and don't be like Esau, who was sexually immoral, uh, who, who sold his birthright, who basically saw short-term gain and short-term pleasure, but experienced long-term pain. There's this community project that the people that are around you, God is saying you have a responsibility for. Okay, so it's a community thing that we would have an intentional pursuit. So look at, look at verses 4. 14 and 15. Look at verses 14 and 15. The words of strive. Strive for peace with everyone. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. The the word for strive is to chase after something. The word for strive is this intense effort that we pursue something. We, We press forward in something. That's a different word in Greek than the next word, which is see to it. That one is take care, watch over something, guard against something, uh, be intent on. So put all of those things, strive for this and see to it, is this intense effort with great care and awareness. That that's what it is to pursue holiness. The work of God in Christ, that he paid for our sin on the cross, that he is the sacrifice. He's the one representing us. We can go into the presence of God when we should be struck dead for even touching the mountain. We can go into the presence of God because of what Jesus has done. That flows out in a life of obedience. Not to earn our entrance back in, but as a result. I am so free to enter the presence of God that holiness starts to show up in my life. And it's an intentional pursuit towards that. But then there's also this sense of an intentional pursuit of being captivated by God. Now, this is where this passage really got fun, is because my initial read, not the greatest read. You know, you kind of read something, and then you start to dig into it, and you're like, wow, that's not what it's saying. You start to look at the context. You start to look at the the Old Testament context, and you're saying, oh, there's something very different at hand. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they, Israel, did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. That's not Moses. It's God when he was down on Sinai speaking. 
much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Basically, the word from heaven carrying even more weight than that of earth. See that, there's that, that sense of awareness. It's another word uh, in Greek. It's a sense of observation and watching out for something. But what is true? See that you don't, see that you don't refuse him who is speaking. Here's the true nature of not hearing the word of God or hearing the word of God and not moving on it. The true nature of that is idolatry. Idols, putting something else up as God and not God and not him. So idolatry, the true nature is the true nature of refusing God's word. What's interesting, it's the same word that's in verse 19, okay? Same Greek word. So in verse 19, the word uh, that um, the writer of Hebrews translates beg is the same word here of um, is the same word here of us refusing. And so basically verse 19, they're begging God to stop talking to them in Exodus. God, we can't take anymore. We can't hear anymore. Please stop talking. Now they're not refusing God at that point. They're just overwhelmed, but it's the same exact Greek word. So it's a play on that, what they did in Exodus, now God's people do in, a term, in terms of actually moving away from God and refusing and moving away from his word. But to understand this, we have to go to Deuteronomy 4. Okay? There's no way we're going to do justice to this. Write this down. Deuteronomy 4, starting in verse 9, and go to verse 24 at least. I beg you to read this this afternoon or sometime this, this week because this is what it is to refuse and to discard the word of God. So this is God's people. They're about, they're getting ready to go into the promised land. God is kind of reminding them after wandering around all of what he's done. Start in verse 9. He says, only take care. Well, that sounds familiar. Take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart and all the days of your life. Make them known, based on the things that God has done, make them known to your children and your, ch- and your children's children. Then jump down to verse 15. It's a couple few slides down uh, in your scriptures, probably easily, more easy uh, to do. Verse 15, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that's, under the wa- uh, that's in the water under the sea or under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, that you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them things that the Lord your God has allotted to all these people under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you 
and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people for, for his own possession, his own inheritance, as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you. He swore, this is Moses speaking, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of the good land. Another take care. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And make a carved image in the form of anything that the Lord your God has, has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. That was the last verse of our passage, wasn't it? That God is a consuming fire. The quick summary is this, is that to refuse him who is speaking, the language of verse 25 of Hebrews 12, to refuse him who is speaking, we would think it's kind of a pushing God out, but really it's hearing God's word and forgetting it. Because He's warning his people, don't forget who I am. Don't forget what I did. Don't make a carved image. Don't worship creation because you can see it. Don't forget the relationship I have with you. So the refusal is actually to hear God's word and forget it and not act on it. But then it's also to chase after something else, things of the earth, earth, things that will pass away. And ultimately, when you chase after any other God, what does God call that? He calls it idolatry. If you read through Deuteronomy chapter 4, idolatry is equated to hearing the word and forgetting it. Us hearing the word of God and kind of just brushing it off. Us hearing the word of God and refusing to surrender to it. Us hearing the word. Idolatry takes and rejection of God takes all sorts of forms. You don't have to have a little Buddha on your, on your shelf to say that you're an idol worshiper other than the God of the Bible. Anything that you place uh, in, in that you serve in your life other than him is an idol. Even us taking the word of God and refusing to act on it, refusing to hear it, and to subtly forget his goodness is an act of idolatry because we've put something else in its place. What's there in your life? What's the thing that you cannot do without? Because the point is, why is this idolatry and not just to move away? Is because the last verse, God says, uh, jump two or three slides, Jeannie, that God says he is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Meaning, I want your worship. I am the one that your love should be for. I remember when I was dating Linda and I went and visited my brother out in California. Okay, and um, you know, he tells this story to this day. That was all I could talk about. He's like, all right, I get it. You know, um, you, know you really like this girl, Linda. Um, but he was tired of it. I talked about her so much. I was consumed by her. She had my heart. My heart was given to her. It wasn't just the, the process of, oh, I know I need to call her tonight. I couldn't wait to call her. A consuming fire takes over. There's the sense of judgment in the midst of this, but if you think of it in terms of idolatry, us hearing the word and not doing anything with it or putting on a sidelines is equated 
to idolatry because we are not consumed with a love for God. We're not captivated by a love for God. And the writer of Hebrews says, if that is not you, if you are not so consumed with and captivated by a love for God, what does he say? Strive, see to it, and make every effort that you would pursue God. If you notice your friend or your family member is not captivated by the love of God, make every effort and strive to pursue him. This is not to earn your way back in. It is merely in terms of us knowing uh, the beautiful nature of the glory of God that he would be revealed in us. Are you chasing him or are you chasing something else? Let's pray. God, uh, would you use all of this? Uh, Father, a, a great time in worship this morning. Father, a time where we get to hear from friends in other countries. God, uh, that your word speaks. Father, would we be people that are not um, moved by your word, that we would leave here with an intentional striving and pursuit to know you. God, give us that heart. Uh, give us a, a heart that desires uh, to be surrendered to you and captivated by you. God, help us to see that anything else in this world that we chase after is ultimately us trying to knock you off the throne. Father, I pray that you would meet us there. Thank you that we don't earn our way into your presence. You graciously give it to us. You covered that with the blood of Jesus. Father, bring us to a place of real trust and of real faith this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.